They're like the philosophers in Plato's cave who are looking at the shadows of the past, that Cold War structure, and making the argument why it needs to come back, and they need to get out of the cave and look at the reality of the world today. It is the week of October 4th, and welcome to episode 100 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Jamil Jaffer, NSI Executive Director and Founder, Carmen Medina, former Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, Sarah Stewart, Executive Director at Silverado Policy Accelerator, and myself, Lester Munson, a Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we are talking about the future of American national security policy. Thanks, everyone, for being with us today. This is the 100th episode of Fault Lines, and we want to spend this week talking about the future. What are the challenges the United States will be facing in five years or 15 years, and how are we preparing for them today? So uh, this is a question for for everyone uh, in the podcast today. The near consensus in Washington right now is that the rise of China poses a huge challenge for the United States, probably for the next generation. Do you agree with that consensus? If so, please let us know why and in what particulars. And if not, what do you think is the alternative organizing principle for U.S. national security? Security going forward. Jamil, I'm going to start with you. Well, Les, I mean, I think the question is what what should the organizing principle be, right? I mean, the fundamental problem, uh, you know, as Richard Haas lays it out, is that there appears to have been a decay in we thought the world order should be, right? The world order should be one led by the United States, leaning forward, engaged in the world, and in a lot of ways, leading the world to that, that more beneficial outcome. Um, and while he points out that, uh, you know, uh, what's happening here is not sort of pure isolationism, right? because we have this hawkish approach towards uh, China, but it's a rejection of sort of internationalism, right? It's, a, it's more of a nationally focused uh, approach. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, I think a more domestic uh, focused approach with, a, with sort of this idea that, that international politics has to work for the middle class as, as Jake Sullivan and others who wrote in their report prior to the administration. Um, you know, in my view, the, the, the real answer is something slightly different, right? What we actually need is a foreign policy uh, that returns to America recognizing how important its role in the world is and how that role in the world actually has shaped the the economy that we have, has shaped our uh, our our trajectory. Um, and we are here today precisely uh, because we've led in the world historically over the last three, four, five decades, um, and because we haven't taken a backseat to any other nation um, and we haven't allowed others to lead. It's because we've leaned forward and led. And so I think it's a mistake, whether uh, because of some uh, some false multilateralism that some trumpet or some isolationism that others trumpet or this idea that somehow we have to make the foreign policy work for a particular section of America. Right. The fact of the matter is that an engaged America raises the tide and raises economic votes in the United States. It, it provides us the ability to do what we need to do in the world and it benefits the larger globe. Right. While benefiting the United States, it also benefits the larger globe. And so. Uh, I'm a believer in the idea that America that leans forward in every instance and leans towards leadership in every instance is an America that has a stronger economy and a world that's more stable uh, and a world that ultimately redounds to our nation's interests. And so, um, you know, I think that there's this ongoing debate between isolation on one side, uh, multilaterals on another, internationalism somewhere in the middle. Um, I think all of those in some sense are wrong. This should be about American leadership across the globe. 
and coming together our allies to make that leadership happen. Carmen, I'm interested in your thoughts on what Jamil just said. I will, uh, and I'll preface it by saying, I largely agree with the direction Jamil is taking, but at the end of the day, the national security position of the United States has to be something that's actually sustained and supported by the American people themselves. And I'm not sure that what he is describing and what I largely agree with is actually where the American people are right now, based on the last two folks who have won uh, elections for chief executive in this country. What's your take? First, I want to get back to this question of China, which was the question. Do you think the uh, rise of China is the threat, the organizing policy concern for the United States? And I would take a different tack on that. I don't actually think the rise of China is a threat. I think it's a challenge. I think it's going to be something we have to deal with, but I don't think it's a threat in the same way that the decline of China will be a threat to U.S. interests. And I've been, you know, I'm not a China watcher at all. I have a good friend who is, and we exchange emails. And I've been watching these signs in the Chinese society the last couple of years, certainly since covid a certain amount of what I sense is tension and frame. She has certainly uh, taken aggressive actions against people that he thinks are becoming independently powerful. Now you have the uh, energy shortage or the electricity grid problems. You have, of course, the real estate market collapse and uh, the relationship between the, the very intelligent Chinese middle class and elite. And the government is one that as long as we have economic growth and prosperity, uh, we're willing to tolerate a certain, actually a significant amount of political control. If I were still at CIA, I would be pulling together the analysts who work on China and we would be having conversations about this. Uh, How should we think about this? Because certainly when a country is, or a leadership feels troubled, nervous about its prospects, it's more likely to do things like rattle its, you know, aircraft against Taiwan as a show of force than uh, if it's completely secure. So on that China part, I'm just going to put out there that the rise of China, like the rise of the United States was for Europe 100 years ago, the rise of China is something cyclical that happens on the international stage. And I think uh, problematic. It'll require a lot of finesse, but it's something that's what you pay government officials and diplomats for. A decline in China, the beginnings of political instability or disruptions in the supply chain. Now we're talking about real, really significant threats to U.S. and world interest, in my opinion. Second part of the question. First, I believe, agree completely that a U- American foreign policy has to be sustainable. And I, you know, I I read the Richard Haas article. I find it, I find that he glides over the most significant argument, which is that we have not been very successful at these types of nation building activities such as Afghanistan. And second, on creating the new structure for the economic order going forward, 
I don't see any way that the U.S. can be the leader of that because we don't have the kind of power that we had after World War II. After, immediately after World War II, the U.S. represented 50% of the world economy because every other country was devastated. Of course, we were the natural leaders of the international economic order. Today, maybe we're representing 20 to 25% of the world economy. And depending upon what happens in China, I think in the next 10 to 15 years, that's probably going to decline. So I don't see how the U.S. can pretend that it's going to organize the international economic order. Sarah, love to get your reaction to uh, what you've heard so far. Lots of great points, I think, made by, by Jamil and Carmen. I'm, I'm really intrigued, Carmen, by your thoughts on the fall of China versus the rise of China. And, you know, I, I think you're on to something there. I think that regardless, though, of whether this is a China on the rise or or the fall of China, what we are seeing is an escalation coming out of China. And I think that whether it's, you know, the what what they're doing against Taiwan, what they're doing in Xinjiang. Um, what we're seeing in their most recent five-year plan that, that was released this summer about gaining technological uh, independence while also being a leader, Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, this is a China that is, whether it's motivated by its rise or its fall, it is motivated. And one thing that it can do that we can't do in a democracy is it can plan Um, 5, 10, 25 years down the line and not have to worry about political winds blowing. I'm not saying that we should, you know, denounce democracy, like definitely to the contrary. But we have yet, I think, to be able to find a sustaining foreign policy strategy that is able to, you know, withstand different elections I think the Haas article was interesting, and I agree with him on on certain points that to some extent there's been continuity. And so if you look at it from that perspective, then you would say, okay, well, there's some continuity here. And so our strategy is largely the same. But I don't think that that's right. I think that there's been some continuity in policies, but I don't think that anybody has really put forth a bipartisan objective of what we want our foreign policy to be. Who has laid out the vision 10 years from now, we want our relationship with China to look like X. And then you drive a strategy that gets to that objective. I'd be really interested to, to see that. And we talked about that some uh, some last week on, on the podcast as well. And then I, I would just end by saying, you know, it really is interesting to think about our success in terms of nation building outside of the United States and what our success rate in nation building has been within the United States. And I think some of the the follow-up questions are going to touch on this, but, you know, I, I think it's really hard for us to invest abroad in building out governments and rule of law and, you know, convergence of views when it's also difficult for us to do this, to do this internally. I think 
if we were, if we were doing a better job internally, that might actually inform the appetite for what we're doing externally as well. Jamil, I'm eager to get your thoughts on the concept that, that Carmen mentioned that uh, we might actually be seeing the fall of China, not so much the rise of China currently, that there are yeah. these huge challenges in China and uh, would in fact a failed China state, and why I'm really extrapolating here, be uh, much more of a challenge for the United States. It is uh, well over a billion people. Uh, it is a huge part of the global economy. And if, and if China were to fail and fail spectacularly, that would be uh, potentially catastrophic for us. Is that, is that something that we should be, we should be planning for? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think obviously um, if, if, if that's right, um, it's a huge concern. I mean, 1.4 billion people in China, um, a huge market and a huge producer uh, of goods uh, for the world. Um, and if China were to go through a significant collapse, that would be uh, potentially catastrophic for the world economy. Um, at the same time, I think that we can't we can't build our national security posture around uh, a hope or a vision that China may fail. We need to prepare for that certainly, um, and and prepare uh, to try and figure out how to how to address that. But I think we have to build around the assumption that China that, that China is successful, um, and we have to build preparing for uh, a China that's a threat on the horizon, both economically and militarily. Um, and if we're prepared for that world, and we're able to succeed in that world and be able to, uh, to find our place um, in that firmament where there's a strong, powerful, wealthy, uh, economically successful, militarily successful China, um, I think that leaves us well prepared for a world in which China has challenges and faces challenges. So I don't think necessarily the two are at odds with one another. Um, it's interesting. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really thought about the scenario in which uh, China collapses, but Carmen raises good points. You know, and and at the you know at the end of the day, I think um, you know when you're looking at American interests, right? American interests are served by a stable world uh, that is generally rowing in the direction of freedom, uh, democracy, capitalism. Um, and when I say capitalism, I mean the kind of capitalism we practice, free market capitalism, not the kind of capitalism that China practices, which is not a real form of capitalism. It's simply communism with a capitalist veneer on the on the cover of it. So we're more successful in a world that operates that way. And so the more we can see that happen, right? And again, I share Sarah's point uh, that, that we have not been good at nation building, uh, that we're not good at exporting democracy uh, to everywhere in the world, and that we've had significant challenges. And we've seen those in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and the like. Um, but I do think that there is a, a consonance between American interests and American values. I don't think that we have to choose between the two, right? I do think that the two go together um, and that a world that is more free, a world that is more democratic, a world that is based more on free market capitalism is a world that where more, more uh, boats rise, the tide overall across the globe rises higher, faster. Um, and the U.S. and our allies are in a better position in that world because that's the, that's the order we've created and it's the one that we're successful at. And so uh, while other nations may be more successful in worlds in which uh, command and control economies apply or market manipulation works, or, or, um, or, or shortchanging your people uh, is the right thing to do, or interning a million people, whether it's in gulags um, or in, in, in prison camps in Xinjiang. You know, in those worlds, other countries do better. We do better in a world, a world that's generally free, democratic, and, and free market capitalist. I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about the collapse of China. Uh, uh, I mean, that's not what I see. But I am talking about a China that has some serious setbacks economically and what that will do to the 
uh, unwritten contract between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that a nervous China is much more unpredictable and therefore more dangerous for the U.S. than a confident China. Three years ago, China was very confident. I don't see the same kind of confidence today. And I see circumstances that account for that lack of confidence. It does, it does seem like, you know, with President Xi grabbing power and going for this unprecedented third term, I think later uh, this year, then uh, it, it seems like an indicator of weakness, not an indicator of strength, that the system needs to be changed. He's clearly choosing to be nationalistic in his approaches, even, even a racialized approach to some of the internal issues in China and issues with Tibet and, and other places. I mean, those are, those are not the the moves of a confident, secure leader who's willing to step aside and anoint an heir and think and think that things will keep going. He's clearly and and there's this crackdown going on on capitalists, on on people who've been successful in business, on celebrities. Uh, there's pressure on uh, Chinese uh, expatriates around the globe. This new saber rattling over Taiwan. It all really does seem like there's. That, that President Xi is trying to distract people from something that's going on inside China. But in the category of, uh, I guess you could call it rumint, but I happened to be in a meeting recently with academics from uh, like uh, university presidents, and they were talking about the high Chinese enrollment in their schools this year. It's recovered and how they get the impression that these students have been told by their parents to not come back, uh, which I thought, you know, again, just a little, it's an anecdote. Somebody, somebody shared it, but I, uh, and that, and that, and that these universities recognize that some of these Chinese students are not who they say they are. They're actually there to keep tabs, some kind of pseudo government person or, or source to keep tabs on the Chinese students and that the Chinese students themselves are pretty good at identifying who those people are. It was a really interesting conversation. That was just another tidbit that kind of led me to ruminate on this idea. Are we focusing on the wrong thing here when we talk about the rise of China? I do agree with Carmen that a, a China that is, uh, or Chinese leadership that's worried about their hold on leadership is much more dangerous uh, than a China that a China leadership that's confident in their in their in their leadership and 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 you know for I think exactly the reasons that 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 uh, that Carmen laid out which is they're more likely to strike out they're more likely to to turn abroad and try to distract their public attention that by the way is true of 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 all, almost every nation right a nation not con- whose leadership is not confident in their stability at home oftentimes will strike out on foreign adventures to distract attention uh, at home from their own domestic problems now. That problem is multiplied when you're talking about a 1.4 billion uh, person country in China. Um, at the same time, a ultra confident, highly aggressive China that feels like it can expand in the South China Sea with reckless abandon and not and be unconstrained by threats of American use of power is also very dangerous, right? And that is, by the way, the China we've seen for quite a while. In part because they're not afraid of us. We have done nothing to demonstrate to China that we are anything more than a paper tiger. At every turn in the last decade plus, right? We have seen presidents and leadership in the United States that have simply taken a backseat on the world, that have stepped back from, 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 from conflicts at every turn, that have shown themselves to be weak and irresolute. And when red lines are set, they're not enforced. And when deals are to be made, the deals may be made with dictators, deals may be made with, with terrorist groups. The, the America of old, the America that we all grew up in has been gone for the better part of a decade and shows no signs of returning under the so-called adults in the room under the current administration. 
if, if their Afghanistan policy is any sign. Now, one can hope that maybe Afghanistan was a unique case. We'll find out. Sarah, let's pivot back to uh, the, the future uh, for United States national security policymaking. Uh, our, one of my favorite former senators, Bob Corker, used to say, uh, the US has 4% of the world's population and 22% of the world's economy. We'd be crazy not to be involved in the world. Literally, our way of life depends on the US demonstrating effective global leadership. That doesn't mean we're telling everyone what to do, but that we're playing our appropriate role in the world and trying to uh, continue to build the rule of law and a system of friendly nations promoting democracy and human rights, because that's what's best for our way of life. It's just a very realistic assessment of our interests. We should be promoting them. Nevertheless, we have in the last the last two chief executives, we'll go back to this, President Trump and President Biden seem to be pulling back from U.S. commitments in the world, maybe in slightly different ways, but they both wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Trump actually wanted to get out faster than Biden uh, took us out. And you, it, it seems pretty clear to me Biden took us out way too fast because it sure, certainly didn't go very well. Uh, so it's not like either party is offering an alternative view here. And I want to and, and then throw one more factoid at you uh, before I, I let you respond here, which is in this poll that uh, we did on the Internet, this highly scientific poll done by uh, the National Security Institute, our first question for folks was, what is the biggest challenge facing U.S. policymakers in the next five years? And of those choices, by far, the most popular answer was political polarization here at home. Over 75% of respondents said that it's actually our own internal politics that are the thing we're going to be trying to overcome five years from now. Don't let President Obama off the hook on this thing. There were eight years of a lack of American leadership in the world under President Obama also, and a retreat from the world and, and a retreat from Afghanistan. So don't 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 let him off the hook either. It's been three presidents in a row, two Democrats, one Republican, well, or whatever you want to call whatever Donald Trump is, which is certainly not a Republican of any stretch that I'm aware of. Sarah, you can respond to either two presidents or three presidents. It's totally up to you. And in either case, it does seem to be a trend. Please go ahead. Okay, well, I'm going to respond to four presidents because I'm going to posit that if it wasn't for George Bush getting a involved in a lot of these oh, things, then there yeah. wouldn't have been a retreat in the first place. But anyway. This is a fight we should definitely have. I like to go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. No, 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 no. We're looking forward, Jamil. We're not looking back. We're looking forward. I think that everybody has gotten it wrong, right? And I'm not the president. I'm probably never going to be the president. So, you know, who am I to say uh, you know, how I would act if I were in their shoes. But I think that you don't have to be involved in everything to lead. And you don't have to be involved in wars and nation building necessarily to be leading and to be promoting democracy and to be promoting, you know, values that you know, condemn human rights violations and, you know, look at how we get to a more sustainable economy that's going to address climate change and things like that. There are going to be times, of course, where when we talk about America leading, that is going to necessarily require more than diplomacy, more than coalition building, you know, more than just going to a multilateral, you know, conference of the parties like coming up in Glasgow, right? But I would say that in those instances, there is a way to go about it. There is a unilateral way 
where the U.S. goes in first and, you know, hopes that people join and NATO comes in and allies come in. There's a, and, and again, that may be the right move in certain instances, but I think that America can lead on almost all fronts, can have allies supporting America's leadership and not just in terms of the message and and the actual um, uh, and and the actual action, but also through resources, right? Um, we can be doing that. We can be doing that with allies and really reserving that unilateral action for when we absolutely need it the most. To your question about political polarization, I would like to give you a, sort of a, an, an analogy. You know, as as we age we get deeper and deeper wrinkles. And there's one foolproof way to solve it. And it's called Botox. We need political Botox, right? We need to soften (laughs) the crevasses in our forehead that are emblematic of our two political parties. There is no two ways about it. We are just getting further and further entrenched. That crevasse is getting deeper and deeper. We've got to find a way to soften it. And I'll take it back to the China strategy piece that that we were talking about. I actually think that getting bipartisan agreement on what our China strategy should be will be more difficult than executing on that strategy. I think we're getting there. We're starting to converge on on a path forward, but um, we're still seeing a lot of holes We had the Senate pass the U.S. um, Innovation and Competition Act, but now it's languishing in the House. And that would have been the closest thing that I've seen to to a bipartisan strategy on on China. Um, So it'll be it'll be really interesting to see where we go. But I I agree with the poll and I believe I might have even answered in that poll that political polarization was going to be a real problem for us. Because if we want to act in a bipartisan fashion with durable results, we need Congress to do it. Otherwise, we're in executive order land, which nobody really loves and serves a particular purpose, but has a limited duration. Carmen, I'd love to get your your take here. It seems to me the polarization is one of the things that leads to our policies being so herky-jerky over time. A president comes in. He changes all the changes all or most of the policies of his predecessor because those policies themselves were just done by the executive branch. They weren't ratified by Congress, either as a treaty or what have you. And so we've got this flip and flopping back and forth on climate issues, on how we're handling the Iran nuclear program, on how we talk to our allies in Europe, how we talk to Canada, uh, whether we're doing it on Twitter or through, uh, you know, the traditional kind of uh, presidential spokesperson. It seems like we've this this polarization, this inability in particular of Congress to come together on a couple of issues where the, where there is bipartisanship. China infrastructure, for example, I don't want to overinterpret the failure from last week, but it certainly wasn't uh, heartening that Congress couldn't agree that the House couldn't agree to pass a bipartisan package on infrastructure. How, how do we as 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 Americans how do how do we get back to a place where we're able to act together both when both parties see a benefit to success instead of one of the parties seeing more of a benefit in fail. In the uh, Richard Haas article, more than once, he talks about the post-Cold War world. In fact, at one point, he calls it the post-post-Cold War world. And I think that 
helps explain why we do not have partisan support for U.S. or American foreign policy goals. During, you know, everybody's everybody's desperately trying to go back to that moment of clarity that we had for 35 years after World War II, where there was no disagreement as to who the enemy enemy was and no real disagreement on, on how to deal with that issue. And unfortunately, that artificial state, and I do believe it was completely artificial, has come to dominate the thinking of a lot of foreign relations people, the deep state, the establishment, and they keep trying to get back there. And I, I think it's lost forever or no, forever is the wrong term, but it, it, it'll take several generations of some, you know, wild other stuff happening in the world before we wander back into that area, right? And so we, here we are uh, with with no clarity, no good guys and bad guys, and now we're simply trying to navigate. I think, uh, you know, Trump is accused of being transactional. Maybe there's nothing wrong with being transactional. I mean, I'm not a, a Trump fan at all, but maybe a transactional foreign policy is the best that we can hope for in this intermediate period. Uh, I think lacking this Cold War organizing principle, I don't think that there's going to be much hope for a partisan foreign policy. I think the best that we will get is some, you know, transactional five-year agreement to do this with China or to do that with climate change. I, I am, you know, I feel a, a, a little bit like it's Plato's Republic and the philosophers are in the cave. So I think all the IR and poli-sci people, the, the academics, the, the, the conventional wisdom, the holders of conventional wisdom in foreign policy, they're like the philosophers in Plato's cave who are looking at the shadows of the past, that Cold War structure and making the argument why it needs to come back. And they need to get out of the cave and look at the reality of the world today. I mean, I think America can be a very effective leader, uh, a very effective uh, facilitator of a lot of things in the world that obviously comes, you know, it has a great position of authority and power. But it, I, I don't think it should be thought of as as some great cohesive story narrative that we tell the American people and therefore we have partisan agreement. I think those times are gone. Carmen, I love that answer. Last week, Chris Ford mentioned the imminence of the eschaton, which I was a little dismissive of. I love bringing in Plato's cave. Thank you for doing that. I think you're entirely correct. And to prove it, I'm going to cite our Twitter poll again, Jamil, and I'm going to throw this to you and let you defend your organization. 92% of our respondents on Twitter said the U.S. would come militarily to the aid of Taiwan if China moved against Taiwan. I am not at all sure that outside the cave that that is correct, that the American people would support a military intervention over Taiwan. I'm, I'm not convinced of it. That doesn't mean I don't think it would be a good idea. I'm just not convinced the American people would support that. And I think, therefore, our political actors, who are pretty well attuned at the end of the day to where their voters are, are also not going to support it. What say you? Celeste, I think, one, you misread the poll. The poll says, should the U.S. come to Taiwan's defense? The answer to that is, of course, should be, it should be 92%. Of course, we should come to Taiwan's defense. It's insane that we're even discussing whether we should come to Taiwan's defense, right? So it's not that they think that the American people will support it. I think everyone understands the American people won't support it. I think everyone understands that we haven't had leadership for the better part of two decades, almost two decades. 
that would support it, right? That's the problem. This is not a problem of the American people. This is a problem of American leadership, right? You could say what you want about George W. Bush and getting in the wars that we shouldn't have been in or whatever. And we can have this, this MSNBC debate about whether it's all George W. Bush's fault. Everything that President Biden has done was all shaped by what President Bush did in 2003 when he went into Iraq. Okay, noted, but that guy's in office now. You've been, he, President Obama was in office for eight years. If he couldn't solve that problem, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like you can't keep blaming W for all this stuff, right? You got to take some amount of responsibility. You have a president today who says, I take responsibility. The buck stops with me. And then literally in the very next sentence blames everybody, the Afghan people, the Trump administration, ICE, I mean, you name it. Everyone's at fault but him. The military leaders. I mean, it's, it's the intelligence community. It's everyone's fault but his. But he takes full responsibility. Got it. Got it. But less to, to Carmen's point, right? And I, I'm very cautious when disagreeing with somebody who's got the breath and depth and experience and, and analytic knowledge that Carmen does. But I think she's completely wrong. I think this idea that um, that we're all just hankering for the old core war era, and that's because we're all a bunch of a bunch of dinosaurs who live in academia and don't live in the real world, right? I actually think that those of us who see a major threat on the horizon and, and want us to recognize that threat for what it is and recognize that there is a us and them in the world, right? And the them, by the way, are the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and the North Koreans, not necessarily aligned all together, but individually, certainly in the Chinese are the largest of those, right? There is an us in them. And maybe the Europeans don't recognize it, right? And maybe our other allies don't recognize it, but we recognize it. And that's not about some desire to recreate the evil empire, right? Or the Cold War era sort of nature of the, of the, of the relationship. It's because it's the reality. China is inveterately opposed to what we want to do in the world. And they don't share our vision for the world. Neither do the Russians, the Iranians, or North Koreans. And we should just call that out for what it is. And the sooner we say that, that's realism. That's not some pie-eyed academic idealism that's hankering for the, the, the days of the 50s and 60s. It's the reality in front of us. So um, I, I think it's interesting, though, that Carmen thinks it's not the reality. I mentioned, I mentioned Carmen's thoughts on what the real world actually looks like. If it's not a world in which the, the Chinese are our major opposition, is it a world in which we're all sort of, I, I don't, I, I mentioned, like, Carmen, so what, 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 how do you see the world if it's not this world that I describe where there are sort of two camps, ours and theirs? Jamil refuses to let us talk about the future, Carmen, so please go ahead. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I believe that you can posit that uh, the Chinese, when you say they don't want the same world that we do, I, I frankly think Chinese could care less about how the United States runs its domestic affairs and about how Europe runs its domestic affairs. I think that uh, it cares about how China runs its domestic affairs and it cares about how Asia runs its affairs because it impacts on China. So I think the Chinese are, they are not out to impose the communist system on America. Neither for that matter is Russia. Really, it's hard to figure out exactly what Russia stands for other than greed. Iran and North Korea, I mean, they're just sweet, generous kind of places that I would not group with uh, Russia and, and China in terms of the kinds of problems they were. In some ways, particularly Iran and North Korea both are, are, are more problematic because they are feistier and willing to do things that neither China nor Russia want to do. So, I, I mean, I don't actually disagree with anything that Jamil described, other than I would not characterize this, you know, 
celebrity death match between China and the U.S. as as what's going to happen in the world going forward. So really, our disagreement is, how do you handle this situation? You know, this is not a new thing. A new power arriving on the world stage is not a new thing. It hasn't happened for about 100 years. The world is very different. But this can be accommodated without there being a violent conflict. And that should be our hope. And um, I, I, I believe that, you know, the, the best prospects for uh, China, it, you know, taking its rightful place in the world in a way that we'll be more happy than not still comes from some kind of domestic reform or change in the domestic situation in China. Who knows if that will, will ever happen? I, you know, I don't know. Sarah, uh, one of the other questions we asked in the internet poll was, in five years, will China pose more of a military threat or an economic threat to the United States? 91% of respondents said more of an economic threat. Only 9% said more of a military threat. What, you know, kind of building that into our understanding of of at least where NSI Twitter followers are, uh, what that means for for Taiwan and this question, is is the U.S. actually going to come to the aid of Taiwan militarily? Or are we are we maybe pulling, you know, in, in the process of pulling back and realizing this is more of an economic challenge, maybe not willing to shed uh, blood over Taiwan? I mean, this is this is a this is a tough question. And there are definitely people you know, who are, who are more expert than I am, who could, who could answer this probably with, with more of a factual foundation, but I'll give you my perspective, which is that I think in a, if we are looking at a direct China threat to the United States, I think that the poll is dead on that. That's probably not, you know, in the cards as much as an economic threat is when you bring Taiwan into the mix it muddies the waters a bit because now we're looking at an indirect threat. Um, we are building up our own military capabilities in the Indo-Pacific. We're working with our allies to do that. The recent AUKUS agreement with the, with the new nuclear submarines for Australia is part of that. I think all of that is to kind of, you know, puff out, puff out chests and to, you know, create uh, or, or maintain and enhance a deterrent strategy that would hopefully, you know, ward off any military conflict, including against China, against Taiwan. Um, I think people don't really understand what's at stake with China invading Taiwan. Um, I think, as Jamil said, you know, it's one thing to say, should we defend a democracy that is holding fast to wanting to be a free people uh, against an aggressive government that wants to unify it with, with mainland China? Does that mean we would step in? Well, how did we react in Hong Kong? As one example, I think is something that we can look to. Um, we looked at a range of tools that was very short of a military intervention. Um, but I think that Taiwan presents other issues. And if China were to invade Taiwan, China would have a place to deploy, um, you know, missiles against Japan, against Guam, against, you know, other, other interests that we have. It would potentially have access to advanced semiconductor chips that are only made by, by a company in Taiwan. There's a lot of issues there. Are these issues front of mind? 
for the American public? Would the American public support this? American public didn't even want to support, you know, wars where we were trying to gain, uh, you know, access to, to oil and to, to energy dependent independence. So I think it, I think it's a really complicated issue and I'm not sure that we would bring American people around to it, whether that means that the U S government would decide that what the U S government would decide, I think remains to be seen. There's a lot of interests there, strategic and economic, um, but I, I, it's it's unclear how we would react. I just wanted to say something on that poll, the choice being economic or military. I actually think the greatest challenge potentially that China will confront, will uh, uh, pose for the U.S. is kind of political, uh, the, the, and as an exemplar for a different style of government, which is you know, they call scientific government or whatever. And, and in, in this sense, I do agree with Jamil that there is a type of government uh, philosophy that the U.S. represents and is the best representative of it, theoretically. But right now, we're not. And unfortunately, you can't win that battle of which is the governing system of the future by, th- by, by saying you better adopt our system or else. I mean, that you, that you, you will not win that. And uh, the U.S. Uh, has to somehow cross our fingers, restore some semblance of a, of a mature working democracy so that uh, it's it, it, so that it isn't so easy for the Chinese to score points against us. Amen. Carmen, I think from now on, you're going to be consulted on the wording of the survey questions, <laughs> uh, because I totally agree with you. For what it's, for what it's worth, uh, I, I do think it would be in the U.S. interest to certainly appear to be willing to defend Taiwan militarily. It is so important to China. It is so important to their identity that failure there would be catastrophic for the for the regime. And the U.S. should not let go of the idea of defending Taiwan until the last possible minute. So I think it's absolutely in our interests there. However, I think the American people saw what happened in Iraq in 2003 and the aftermath there, and they, they see a similar thing. This seemed to be in our interests. It didn't go at all the way we thought it would. We think at the end of the day, this is not a cost-effective way of conducting national security policy. They are much more cautious when it comes to these things than policymakers are. And perhaps it's because you know it's their children that are going to pay the price, perhaps out in on the battlefield or what have you, or, or for some other reason. But the policymakers should not cavalierly make these kinds of uh, assurances without having a very good grounding in where the American people are. And that's why I think it's so important uh, that we do pay attention to who's been elected president. And it's not just a failure of leadership. It's a different kind of leadership, and it may be dissatisfying to some. It also points out the importance of Congress playing a role. Congress needs to get back in the business of authorizing war or not authorizing war. It's been taking a flyer on it for way too long, and they need to get back in that game and get back in that game in a serious way. Okay, we'll uh, we'll wrap that up in a bow. Our discussion of uh, future U.S. national security posture and interests, and let's go to the final phase of the podcast where we each mention a story that we're following that's not necessarily in the news. I am going to go ahead and go first. Uh, I've been tracking uh, the investigation into the the assassination of uh, the president in Haiti from a few months ago. The the current prime minister has now been implicated in that assassination. I have no idea if this is true or not but the Justice Department, such as it is in Haiti, has identified him as a person of interest. He remains the prime minister. Uh, The crisis in Haiti cannot be overstated. We're starting to see some of it 
uh, with immigration issues in our own country. There's no doubt that what's going on in Haiti affects the United States. It should be on the front page. It's not. Uh, so that's the thing I'm tracking. Carmen, I will go to you next. This is sort of in the news, but what's going on in the UK with the supply chain disruption? Probably because of Brexit, but it's not absolutely clear. At least I haven't, it's not clear in my own mind. I'm following that because I keep waiting for something like that to happen in the US uh, in the not too distant future. I hope not. But I do worry about that with the supply chain disruption that's been caused by, you know, not being able to hire people, uh, et cetera, uh, China production problems, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah. Okay, so I'm tracking a story that deals with the Section 301, but not the one that everybody's been tracking for the past few years on China's practices that resulted in trade tariffs. I'm tracking a story about a 301 on Vietnamese timber practices. And rather than ending up in tariffs, this ended up in a negotiated agreement between the U.S. and Vietnam to institute a um, more enhanced timber tracking system. And I think that this is really interesting because it's the first time I know of a 301 being used for environmental purposes. But I also think it's really important because um, a lot of the illegal trafficking in timber is associated with other organized crime and, uh, and other national security interests. So this could actually be, if this works and this agreement really has an impact on the practices, this could be a blueprint for, for doing something similar with other countries as well. Jamil. Celeste, I'm tracking the um, recent launch of a Russian new cruise missile, Zircon. Um, and we uh, just saw that launch uh, here today. Um, obviously a troubling uh, you know, development. We've known about this missile for a while. It was uh, disclosed by Vladimir Putin uh, just a little while back. Um, but the actual test firing now of this missile uh, demonstrates a new capability uh, that could really uh, you know, strike the United States from a distance uh, with the submerged uh, uh, capability. This is very troubling. Right. This allows the Russians to dramatically uh, expand the scope of their of the threat radius that they can project um, uh, using their uh, subsurface vehicles. And so um, uh, it's a it was a concerning thing when uh, when uh, President Putin announced it about a year or so back. Um, and now um, uh, this hypersonic capability uh, has the ability to evade uh, potential U.S. defenses. And that and that is troubling uh, if, in fact, that's actually what uh, what is going on here. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonmatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Riley Boyd for research, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security. Fault lines.